Hello, I'm Carlene Ward, Canterbury Initiative Education Facilitator. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Roger Morgan. Roger is a former GP with 20 years experience and is a consultant psychiatrist at the South Island Eating Disorder Service based at Princess Margaret Hospital. In this podcast, we will be discussing the most common questions we receive from general practice. Some of these are framed as typical scenarios and some are questions about specific treatment options. Let's get started. So Roger, a common scenario is a distressed mother rings the practice saying she thinks her daughter has an eating disorder. Meal times have become a battleground and her daughter is more and more fussy about what she is eating. Her choice of food is so restrictive that she's hardly eating any family meals. What would be your first advice after doing the physical exam, weight and blood tests. This is very much uh, the sort of scenario we get which uh, would lead to a referral to our service at Princess Margaret Hospital. Um, it's likely that this uh, young woman does in fact have an eating disorder and um, depending on how her bloods and physical examination uh, pan out will determine um, how quickly she can be seen in our service. Our service uh, does triage each and every referral and we give priority to um, adolescents or children, uh, so that's um, kids 12 and above. Uh, we do um, give priority on top of that to people who are medically unstable. And so if the GP has those concerns, um, there is a clear uh, pathway for them to contact me at eating disorders, uh, particularly if they're worried about any of the uh, physical parameters, and we can discuss and arrange an appointment time. Okay, thanks, Roger. So another typical scenario is a matron of a girls' boarding school phones to say she is worried that a student is vomiting after meals. Her friends are concerned. She is a normal weight, but appears unhappy and withdrawn. The girl in question denies there is anything wrong and says she just has a mild gastro. What's your advice on further management? I, I think the pathway here is very clear. Uh, the matron of the boarding house has a clear duty of care to notify the student's parent. Uh, this sort of information she cannot keep to herself. Uh, as well as talking with the parents about the student's presentation, she should be insisting upon a full general practice assessment. Uh, this situation uh, we have had a number of times uh, coming to our service and this may or may not be an eating disorder. Uh, the scenario seems to suggest that um, questions about mood and anxiety may well be a prominent feature. I think um, one of the difficulties is, is that um, some young women do not suit the boarding house um, environment and in fact um, thrive in other accommodation arrangements. Those sorts of questions can be discussed at general practice level 
and hopefully some solutions can be found prior to referring to the eating disorders service. Great, wonderful. So our third scenario is we've got a patient with a long history of eating disorder. They present with a flare-up uh, of his anorexia. He's only surviving on three cans of Insure a day. He has had counselling at EAT and has had years of counselling at eating disorders. Any ideas on helping him cope? This scenario raises the difficult area of a person with a severe and enduring eating disorder, typically anorexia nervosa. So severe and enduring disorder is um, characterised by someone having had a continuous series of symptoms consistent with anorexia nervosa for longer than six or seven years. The literature is really explicit about that. The reason that six or seven years is important is because beyond that time, full recovery from the disorder is highly unlikely. And so these people often um, don't necessarily expect to recover, but um, they can look to quality of life issues which can easily be addressed in general practice. And so I think one of the most important things is for the GP to have a solid therapeutic relationship with this sort of patient. So someone, uh, so the patient can feel comfortable um, contacting the GP about what appears to be very small issues to people looking in on this. Again, the GP can see this person on regular occasions, maybe two weekly to monthly, can arrange to do um, bloods to monitor for risky physical situations, may arrange for a dietetic appointment to broaden the range of foods that are being eaten. I would caution that it's probably not useful to focus on weight gain as a goal. People with severe and enduring disorder really struggle in this domain and it's probably more important to focus on regular eating. Okay, thank you. So if we move from someone with a long-term condition to somebody, a young teenager, who has suddenly lost, say, 10 kilos in the last six months, by restricting food in daily gym sessions. Her BMI is 20, but her parents are concerned. A referral has been sent to eating disorders, but ongoing management can be a bit fraught. Do you suggest stopping exercise and sports, even if this is the most important part of her life? This is clearly a difficult situation. Uh, the young person is absorbed with the exercise. It's having a profound effect upon her physical and mental well-being. And so I think it's up to the general practitioner concerned to do a full physical and mental health assessment. And the sort of things to look out for here are um, bradycardia in particular. So if the young woman's pulse rate is below 40 beats per minute in the surgery, 
you can bitch a bottom dollar that overnight when she's asleep, it'll drop down into the low 30s or high 20s. And that, in, that increases her cardiac risk. If she has a wide pulse differential, so the difference between lying and standing pulse, if it's greater than about 30 beats per minute, that's all also significant. And while there is some argument that um, people uh, with low pulse rates who exercise heavily, they have low pulse rates because they're fit, if they have a wide pulse differential, that usually negates that argument, and this is more because of cardiac compromise than anything else. The GP is in an ideal situation to provide sensible advice about levels of exercise. And exercise should be limited um, where there it does appear to be some cardiac compromise. There also needs to be advice given to the parents because if this turns out to be a good going eating disorder, then the way forward for the parents is for them to need to take control over their daughter's level of activity. And the GP may find it difficult to talk about this with the young person in the room and so it's often appropriate just to meet with the parents on their own to give um, this important advice. Okay, thank you. So what is your advice for the chronic bulimic who has had very unstable potassium? How often would you monitor them or would you advise only monitoring with symptoms of palpitations? So this would depend very much on how low her serum potassium is. Um, it's clear that risk of metabolic decomposition um, increases with degrees of hypokalemia. So you'll be aware that um, normal potassiums are anything above 3.5 millimoles per litre. Uh, people who um, have persistent purging behaviours often present with levels of um, serum potassium lower than this. And so if their serum potassium is bordering on 3 millimoles per litre or just a bit lower, then I think there's an obligation to monitor their potassium levels on a fortnightly basis. If, however, their serum potassium level is below 2.5 millimoles per litre, then I think that a referral to the emergency department for potassium replacement is clearly indicated. It's not just enough to give them potassium supplementations. Often in this sort of situation, the patient has depleted body-wide stores of potassium, and this can lead to severe metabolic consequences. All of that potassium needs to be replaced, and quite often that can only be conveniently done so uh, through intravenous infusion. Right. Thank you. What's your advice about using diuretics during refeeding? Diuretics are only generally useful um, in the refeeding situation when the person has marked purging behaviours. If they develop refeeding syndrome in this sort of situation, they can experience marked edema as a response. And 
The patient generally interprets that as meaning that they're having massive weight gain, rapid weight gain, and all of that is fat. This is a nonsense. The physiology is not consistent with that argument. Um, these people have fluid retention, and sometimes it can be quite dramatic. Use of a diuretic, particularly potassium-sparing diuretics, is often useful here. And so in my ward, we would use spironolactone um, three times a day, uh, but we would view this treatment as only being a temporary one. Once the refeeding situation resolves, then there is no further indication to use diuretics beyond that time. Great, thank you. Is fluoxetine still recommended in the bulimic patient to help reduce the urge to binge? Absolutely. Um, I think the research evidence around this is exceedingly clear and was established 10 to 15 years ago. So um, if you compare the efficacy of fluoxetine uh, with cognitive behavioural therapy, a psychological treatment for bulimia, then the effects are about the same. So the outcomes are very similar. One of the advantages is, is that if you combine both avenues of treatment, so fluoxetine with cognitive behavioural therapy, then in fact the effects are additive. And so there's real advantage in prescribing fluoxetine um, for this patient group. One thing I would comment, however, is, is that while you would start on a typical dose of 20 milligrams a day of fluoxetine, you are going to need to get up to the higher doses of 40 to 60 milligrams, and you can do that over several weeks at your leisure. Excellent, thank you. So parents are often very traumatised by having a child with an eating disorder. Are there any support groups that you would recommend for them? Again, absolutely. So the, the premier group in New Zealand is called EDANS, which stands for the Eating Disorder Association of New Zealand. Its head office is in Auckland, and it's run by a person called Nikki Wilson, who um, has been a fervent um, supporter of um, people with eating disorders getting adequate levels of treatment. Um, they focus mainly on family-based interventions and they have a website. Uh, they do have some local um, contacts in Christchurch which parents can be put um, in contact with and they've, to our uh, experience, they generally provide an excellent level of service and support. That's good to know. So our second to last question is, secondary amenorrhea is an important sign of a serious eating disorder. However, many teenagers are on the oral contraceptive. Is there any other sign or blood test that is equally helpful in diagnosis? If you're looking at hormonal profiles, probably not really. Estradiol is not specific in this situation, though people we see with um, moderately severe 
uh, anorexia nervosa in particular, almost always have very much reduced estradiol levels. Another blood test which we do routinely is a simple blood screen. One of the characteristics of starvation is, is that um, bone marrow is very quickly consumed uh, to provide calories and as such um, neutrophil levels in particular can fall quite dramatically. So as I say something as simple as a blood screen can be useful so if you end up with a neutropenia um, with a history of eating disorder this would suggest to you that it, the eating disorder has become well established. Thank you. And our final question is, do you recommend involving a counsellor while waiting for a patient to be seen by the eating disorder service? Not really. Um, I think counsellors have their area of expertise, but eating disorders, eating disorder therapy is not one of those. Um, I've previously mentioned EDANS as being useful and supportive, but what I would consider is, is that a good therapeutic relationship with a general practitioner is far more valuable. What this um, adds to the cover of this patient is follow-up for a start, medical screening, um, and this enables you to quite carefully monitor risk for the patient. The reason that you would monitor risk is, is that if you do need an urgent referral to the eating disorders service, then you can have a conversation with the consultant psychiatrist at that service and you can get your patient pushed up the list for waiting to be seen. Well, thank you, Roger. That was very helpful and useful and we've appreciated your time uh, during this session and in answering all of those questions for us. Thank you. Thank you.